This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. If you want to get your Bible out and open it up to Psalm 51 and kind of mark that spot, we will be there later. We're going to read the entire the psalm in its entirety, but that's going to be a while before we get there. As we talk this morning, we continue our series, Cardiology, on our hearts and see what the Bible says about the condition of our hearts and what it ought to be and how to, f- how to follow and love the Lord our God with all our hearts. And one of our favorite Bible characters is David. I asked you uh, to send me your favorite Bible stories, and a few of you have done that. I wish more of you would have done that because we're going to do a series this summer on our favorite Bible stories, and I'd like to get lots of input. I've gotten maybe 15 people or so have sent me uh, their favorite Bible stories, and so we'll use what we get. You have a few more days to get those into me, and, but I'd love to see them. One of our favorites, though, it appears on a whole lot of people's, a lot of people say, they'll say to me, I want your favorite Bible story, and they'll say, David, and I'll say, okay. There's a whole lot of stories about David in the Bible. Is it when he was in the cave and he cut a piece of Saul's robe? Was it when he killed Goliath? Was, you know, on and on and on. His son Absalom dying and all those, there's lots and lots. So try to tell me a story, okay? That's what I'm looking for. Not a character, a story in that person's life. Get that to me by tomorrow, all right? All right, by tomorrow, and uh, if you will, by the first of the month, that'll work too. But if you try to get to me sooner, that'd be better. But he's one of our favorite Bible characters for a whole lot of reasons. He was the shepherd boy who killed the giant, and he became the king of a, of a, really at the time, the most powerful nation by the end of his rule in that part of the world. He was a poet. Uh, he, was, he was a musician. Uh, he was a warrior. And if you look at his life, If you know about David's life, a few years ago we did a series in his whole life. You look at David's life and it really does resemble a roller coaster, doesn't it? There were really high points in his life and there were some really low points in his life. At times he was following God with all his heart. At times he was deeply involved in horrible sin. At times he led the nation in worshiping God. And at times he was in the depths of depression wondering if God gave a rip about his life. And then, even though God himself called David these words, God said about David, he was a man after God's own heart, after God's own heart. That's how God described him. God had tremendous love for this man. That couldn't have meant that David was somehow perfect because he wasn't, nowhere near. And and so because we, we all probably readily will admit this morning that we're not perfect either. There must be some similarities between us and David. As I read the stories in David's life, I can see a whole lot about me in those stories. God saw to it that David's story, pretty much his whole life, including the times he followed God and the times he failed God and God's people. He failed miserably many times. He saw God saw to it that all those things were included in the Bible. And you know what that tells me about God? And first of all, it tells me, and you know, I, I think, look at Dave and I, would, and I think, how would I like it if my whole life story was published in a newspaper? You know, we're gonna do a series this year and every day we're gonna tell a story about Rick Lawrence and his life. How many of you would like that? Not about me, but about you, you know what I mean? You would like for your life to be published in a book, um, Good and the Bad, 
God saw to it that it's in there, and that, that tells me something about God. It tells me that God isn't looking for perfect people. He's looking for sinners like us who will simply say, God, I, I'm willing to follow you even though I'm not perfect. I'm going to follow you because you are perfect. And it tells us this, this is in your notes, so when our hearts are diseased with lust or power or greed or addiction or a host of other things, could be many, many other things, when our hearts are diseased with whatever it might be that God has a cure. And David's life is full of these amazing stories. It seemed that everything he did, good or bad, he did with great passion. Everything he did, he did with all his heart. And sometimes that was to his ruin, wasn't it? Because he followed a heart that wasn't perfect and he followed it all the way. And so when David's life was on the rise spiritually, we see him worshiping passionately. His wife even called him down on it when he was worshiping one time and said, you know, I I, I don't think you're acting very kingly, you know, in front of all the people, the way he was worshiping. And, um, and David said, you know what? That's okay. It's between me and God, and this is what I'm going to do. When he killed Goliath, he killed him with passion. That's one of my favorite Bible stories. What do you mean he killed him with passion? You know the story. David walked down, and he reached down in the, in the, along the brook, and he picked up five smooth stones and put them in his sack, and then he looked over at Goliath on the other side of the valley, and the Bible says David ran toward Goliath. He ran, that's passion. I'm going to go kill him, and then we're not going to waste any time with this. He did that passionately. But when he went away from God, when he turned his back on God, when he followed his own heart and not God's, he did that passionately as well. If you are here last Sunday, you remember Jesus talking about how sin often enters our hearts, and he said it enters our hearts very often through our eyes, through what we see. Matthew chapter 6, he told, uh, told us that and how we view things. And no story probably better illustrates that entrance into the heart, what we see and how it can drag us down, fill our hearts with disease, than when David saw something that his eyes should never have seen. Second Samuel chapter 11. We have the story. We're not going to take time to read it, but I want to go through it with you. We have a story that begins with words that tell us that David at this particular time was not where he should have been. You ever go places where you shouldn't be? Sure. And we wonder why we go those places where we really have no business being, why we end up kind of messing things up. It's because I shouldn't have been there. He wasn't supposed to be there. And Samuel begins that chapter by saying so. And he says it was springtime and his army was out doing battle with the enemy. And, and if David had one strength in his, in his skills, if David had one really strong skill, it was that David was a mighty military leader. David fought battles and he won. David built up a huge army. David was a military genius, if you will. And being the military leader of the nation, being the king, David should have been, Samuel said, out there with the army fighting the battle, but he wasn't. For whatever reason, he decided to stay home. And one particular evening, he was having a hard time sleeping. So he went up on the roof of his palace to get some fresh air. And from the palace roof, you can imagine, the palace was probably situated high on a hill and looking down the tallest building in town. And looking down, he could see all the houses and the buildings and the businesses around him. And 
He was pacing around on the roof and looking down around him, and the houses were typically in those days in that country, still are by and large, built with flat top, flat top roofs that double in the warm weather months as patios. And so you would go and you'd have a table up there and you would eat up there and you would, that's, that was kind of like your extra room. And David was looking around and he saw on one of those rooftops <clears throat> a woman bathing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Samuel, the author, just to add a little bit to our understanding, adds that this woman was not just a woman bathing. He said she was a beautiful woman. And from there... As you probably know, the story goes south. The wording Samuel gives us tells that Bathsheba had just finished her monthly cycle. And some commentators suggest that it was no, op- that was no accident that she was bathing in a place where she could be viewed. Her husband's away at battle. She's lonely. So David may have not been the only guilty person here. Some suggest that. But what follows, however, in this story is on David, not on Bathsheba, even if she was a willing participant. Well, David looks down and he sees this beautiful woman bathing and it begins to stir emotions in his heart, stir passions in his heart, and he begins to follow his own heart, not God's. He sends messengers to go to her home, find out who she is, and they go and find out who she is, and they come back and say, tell him who she is. Now, mind you that David, by the way, is a married man, Bathsheba is a married woman. And the messengers come back and say, she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of your soldiers. He's out on the battlefield right now. Someone else's wife. But what David has seen has begun to disease his heart. And so he sends those messengers back and says, go get her and bring her back to the palace. Bring her back to me. And she comes to his palace. They sleep together. She becomes pregnant. That's pretty scandalous to have committed adultery with the wife of a soldier who is away defending you and defending your kingdom. And I would also suggest it's pretty scandalous to have adultery with the wife of another man in the very house where probably in another place your own wife is sleeping. That's what's happening here. You should be out defending your kingdom and you're not. So when David finds out that she's carrying his child, he comes up with a scheme to try to hide his sin. You ever do that? Ever try to hide your sin? I'll put it somewhere where God won't see it. The order goes out to bring Uriah home from the battlefield for a little R&R. I want you to go send the messengers, tell Boaz the general, I want Uriah to come home. He's been out there long enough. Come home and have a break and he can stay home for a few days. R&R, you guys have been in the military. Know what R&R is. And uh, let me say that some of you um, remember what the, some of the things that you did on R&R that probably you wouldn't want to boast about. But he wants to bring him back, and David's plan is he'll go back and go back to his home and sleep with his wife, and, and we'll just say the baby was premature or something. But the soldier, Uriah, he is so loyal to his king that when he gets the order to come back to Jerusalem, He says, I won't go home. And he sleeps on the steps of the palace. He's so loyal is he to David. So David finds that out, goes, my plan's not working. Here's what we'll do. So he gets Uriah and they get around and, and David gets Uriah drunk. Thinking if he's drunk, some of those, you know, those loyalties, he'll be thinking more about other things and he'll go home and still he doesn't go home. So plan A has failed. Plan B comes into David's heart and takes David to 
a deeper place of sin in his life. The next day, David writes an order to his commanding general, Joab, to place Uriah on the front lines. Take him and put him right up front in the battle. And when the battle gets really fierce, he tells him, I want you to pull everybody back and leave him out there. Exposed to the enemy so that he's killed. And here's what's what's really, you want to know how hideous David's, how diseased David's heart was? You know who took the message to do that back to the general? Uriah. Uriah carried the message back to his general that said, put him on the front lines. And he didn't know what was in there. That's how diseased this man's heart became. And what David plotted to try and cover his own sin happened, and Uriah was killed in battle. And when the news came back to David, because he said, let me know how it goes, uh, and the news came back to David that he had been killed, he sent a message back to Joab saying, listen, Joab, I know this bothers you that what I've ordered you to do. Of course it did. Joab knew, he didn't know all the details, but he knows this is not right. I know this bothers you. Don't let this matter upset you because he says the sword devours all alike. In other words, he sent a message to this man, said, listen, don't blame yourself, Joab. He was a soldier. He probably would have died anyway. That's a hard heart, isn't it? That's what disease does. Bathsheba got news of her husband's death. She went through the obligatory season of mourning. And then when that was over, she moved in with David. She became his legal wife. And in the palace, she gave birth to his son. And now that we're married, and it's legal, that makes everything all right. Right? That kind of covers the sin. That's what they're thinking. It's our human nature for our hearts to convince ourselves that if we can cover up the consequence of sin, that it's gone, it's done. But the chapter ends with these words, and here are the words that Samuel tells us at the end of chapter 11. However, the Lord, and that's who matters, however, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Nothing was covered up with God. And the next chapter, chapter 12, is very chilling. The Lord sends the prophet, prophet by the name of Nathan, to David. And he tells David a parable about a man who had one sheep and then a neighbor who had many sheep. And anyway, the man with the many sheep took the one sheep of the man. The man loved that sheep like it was his own child. And the other guy took his sheep and killed it and ate it. Had it for dinner. And through that parable, he had David condemn himself for his tryst with Bathsheba because David said, who's guilty? What should we do with him? And David said, we we should require that man's life. And And Nathan looked at him and said, you're the man. You are the man with the many sheep. And David's own words condemned himself. And when... And Nathan told David the consequences of his sin, and here's what God's going to do because of what you've done. And they were significant. Because of David's secret sin... With Bathsheba, David was told that his own wives would be taken away by another man who would sleep with them publicly. Everybody would know what was going on. David confessed his sin against the Lord. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan assured him something. And here's, here's what I find amazing about God. Nathan assured him, David, you've confessed your sin against God, and I want you to know that your sin has been removed by God. Your slate has been wiped clean. But the consequences remain. 
Verse 14 is the evidence of the seriousness of the sin of those who have a relationship with God because verse 14 in chapter 12 says, however, because you treated the Lord with such contempt. It wasn't about Bathsheba. It wasn't about Uriah. It wasn't about Joab because you have treated the Lord with such contempt because when we sin, even though we may sin against one another, ultimately our, our sin is against God because you've treated the Lord with such contempt In this matter, the son born to you will die. That's the consequence. The baby that Bathsheba is carrying is going to die. And so that we understand both the sins of adultery and the sin of murder, both of those sins were punishable by death according to Israel's law. David should have been taken out of the city and stoned to death for either one of those sins. But because of David's repentance, God allowed him to live. God loved David, but he did not love what David had done. And David's son with Bathsheba, if you go and read the story again in in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, the baby dies when he was a week old. Why? That's horrible. Why? And you know what? The, The answer is very simple because David looked at what he shouldn't have. And David then followed his heart that wasn't following God at the moment, and one sin led to the other, and the consequences of sin were there. But there was a cure for his diseased heart. God was not through with David. But yet we read the story, go on, and David was so despondent during that week that his son was sick, this infant baby. We don't know what was wrong with him, but he was obviously very ill, dying from his illness. And David knew, David knew because of what Nathan had said, this is all my fault. My child is sick and my child is going to die because of me. He knew that. A lot of times we want to put things on ourselves What if I had done this and what if I had done that? And we just, you know, I I deal with people a lot who deal with death in their their loved ones and their family. And and so many times they want to heap the blame on themselves. And, and, you know, you have to say, listen, this is not your fault. They made this choice if it was a choice. A lot of sometimes it is. Not your fault that they had got this disease, they got this sickness. Don't put that on yourself. But God, through Nathan, had told him, This is your fault, David that this has happened. He was so despondent that week that it says Samuel tells us that those close to him feared that David would commit suicide. Then when he found out the baby had died, the news came to him and they were afraid to come and tell him because they said, what will he do to himself? They came and told him that the baby had died. A remarkable thing happened within David's heart. Very different than what I hear a lot of people do. David did not blame God He worshiped God. He worshiped him. Please get this. If my sin, if your sin, if our sin is not God's fault, we cannot blame him for the consequences. Do you understand that? If the sin is not his fault, how can I blame him for what results from the sin? It's my own fault. I need to take that upon myself. 
In his own writing, David shares with us what happened during that week when uh, that he repented and that he prayed and he fasted. The Bible tells us that week that the baby was dying. David was in sackcloth and ashes. That was their way there in their culture of saying to God, I am humbled. I am repenting. I am sorry. I, I am, I'm sick of my sin. And David was that way. And he spent that week repenting and confessing, and we find his words in in Psalm chapter 51. It's on page 514 in the Bibles there if you don't have it in front of you. Let me encourage you to take it out because I'm going to read the whole chapter. Psalm 51. The introduction to this chapter, my Bible says, for the choir director, because all all of the Psalms are a song book. Okay, they were to be sung. For the choir director, a Davidic psalm, meaning it was written by David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. So this is when Nathan is confessing to God his sin. And these are, David says, this is what I said to God. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt. By the way, you never will hear him mention Bathsheba in this psalm. He never puts this on her. Wash away my guilt, verse 2. Cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. God, I can't get it out of my mind. Have you ever liked that? Against you and you alone... Have I sinned and done this evil in your sight so you are right when you pass sentence? Nathan's told him what's going to happen with his wives and with his baby. You are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. So, you know, so many times we cry out today in our culture about we want justice, justice, justice. David, that's what David is saying here. God, this is justice for what I've done. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. What was he saying there? From the moment that I was conceived, I became human life. And from that very moment, I had a sinful nature that it was inherited. You know, I know that. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Again, David is in the depths of despair and despondency and depression. Praying, God, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones, talking about himself, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. God, allow me to continue to come to the temple and worship because that's where the presence of God was in those days. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. He didn't say restore your salvation to me. He said, God, restore the joy of of your salvation to me. Verse 13, then I will teach the rebellious your ways. I who have been rebellious, I'm going to share your ways with them. And he's doing that right now for us, isn't he? I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God. 
Again, now he's talking about the murder of Uriah. The God of my salvation and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I will give it. You're not pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. In your good pleasure, cause Zion, it's Jerusalem, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem, and you will de- then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings, and then bulls will be offered on your altar. I want us to get ready now for communion by looking at this psalm. Because this represents the covering, the wiping away of our sin. All right? Follow along with me. The cure for a diseased heart, what is it? First of all, the basis for the cure is the grace of God. The basis is the grace of God, not my works but the grace of God. And David says that in the very opening words of this, of this confession to God. He says, be gracious to me, God. Treat me with grace. Grace is God's love for us, and it's a love that we do not deserve. Grace is God saying, look, you deserve this, but instead I'm going to give you that. That's grace. What did David deserve? He deserved to be taken outside the city and stoned twice. Adultery and murder, he deserved that. He deserved to at least to lose his, his kingdom, to be deposed from the throne. But it was only because of God's grace that he did not die for his crimes against God. Only because of God's grace. The basis for the cure is the grace of God. Be gracious to me. Secondly, confession. What is confession? Confession admits guilt. Never did David blame the guilt on anyone else. You know, remember Adam did. What did Adam say to God? That woman that you gave me. You remember that? Real confession, that's not, that's not confession, that's excuse. Confession admits guilt. And here are the, some words from this psalm that David says that admits his guilt. He says, blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin. I am conscious of my rebellion. I have sinned. I have done evil in your sight. There's a biblical word for what David is experiencing here, and the word is conviction. You familiar with that word? Conviction. There are no excuses. There's no blaming. There's no claiming ignorance. Oh God, I just, I didn't know. God accepts nothing from us but transparency because God sees through our efforts, listen, he sees through my efforts and yours to minimize our sin. God, it wasn't a a bad lie. It was just a little what? White lie. And we teach our children. We We don't tell them, don't lie. We say, it's not nice to fib. Okay? We want to minimize sin. We don't truly confess until we first feel shame for what we've done. Confession means I admit wrong. Number three, forgiveness doesn't necessarily remove consequence. Just because I've been forgiven doesn't mean the consequences are not still going to happen. 
He said to God, you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. You see, when we confess and we admit guilt and we accept God's grace, we understand that justice must be served. If I cut myself with a knife and I have to get stitches to close that wound, that wound will heal. But what remains? A scar. Scar is always there. And I got lots of scars. Number four, our sinful nature will be, can be, transformed. Our sinful nature that he was born with, he said again, I was sinful when my mother conceived me. He said, purify me with hyssop, wash me, restore the joy of your salvation to me, create in me a clean heart. Now please hear me, because there's a lot of confusion amongst people about this. I hear this from people now and then. No one has always been a Christian. There's nobody in this room who popped out of the womb singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. All right? We are born, we are conceived as sinners, we, were, we are born as sinners, and as sinners we need a Savior. Nobody's always been a Christian. In fact, you cannot be a Christian until you first recognize you are a sinner. Not throwing out any names out there, but if someone gets up before you and says, I'm a Christian, but I have never confessed anything as sin to God, you got to stop and say, wait a second, this doesn't match up with this. That testimony doesn't match up with the word of God. Before you can become a Christian, you've got to confess, recognize that you are a sinner, and we're all born sinners, and as Christians who have accepted Jesus as our Savior, we still sin and we still need cleansing and renewal and transformation from within by the Lord. That's, I love Paul's verse in Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. Don't you love that? By the renewing of your mind, present yourselves to God. Well, cleanse, cleanse me, he says, purify me with hyssop. You probably don't know what that is unless you've studied it, but hyssop was a kind of a bush vegetation that grew in that part of the world and they would break off branches of it and it was the hyssop branch that the priests would use to dip into the basin of blood caught from the altar and the sacrifice, the bull, he would dip it in there and with that hyssop branch he would go and he would splatter the blood on the altar representing the sins of the people had been covered for another year. It was with the hyssop, that's what David was saying with the hyssop, God purify me with hyssop. It pointed to, in the Old Testament, these things pointed to the blood of Christ that he would shed on the cross that cleanses us from all sin. And here's another thing that David confesses and he realizes is that sin in my life causes me to lose joy. You ever wonder why you come to church sometime on Sundays and you get up and you think, oh boy, another Sunday. I guess I'll go do the church thing. I'm not real excited about it. What a pretty day it is outside today, God. Some of the other things I could do that I would really enjoy, but uh, again, you know, they're expecting me to be there. And you come and we sing the songs and you maybe mumble through the songs and you never, you, you know, you just kind of, it's empty. You know, you, you know what you need to go back and look at? What, what sin is still residing in my heart right now? My heart must be diseased because I have lost the joy of my salvation. What causes us to lose that joy? Sin. Unconfessed. Sin. It serves as a block between our hearts and God's. Number five, transformation leads to a changed life that others 
will see. He says, renew a steadfast spirit within me. I, who is rebellious, will teach the rebellious your way. My, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. My mouth will declare your praise. That's what repentance leads to. The word steadfast, a steadfast spirit. Steadfast is a turning away. It's a changed mind. It results in being willing to follow, follow the Lord again. And that willingness that follows this confession should produce different behaviors in me. And that change that it causes is noticed by those around us. Instead of looking around us at those things that tempt us, we begin looking up to God and singing in praise and proclaiming the gospel. And then David tells us in the psalm, here's an important thing. I cannot cure myself. This isn't something that I can fix. God, I'm going to do better, I promise. That's not what it's about. He says to the Lord, you don't want a sacrifice from me. Well, maybe what I need to do is just give more to God. I'll throw a little bit more in the offering, you know. Maybe that'll satisfy God. He doesn't want a sacrifice from me. He doesn't want me to say, okay, I'll spend more time in this and more. That's not what he wants. He says, you're not pleased with the burnt offering. That's not what God wants. He says, the sacrifice God wants for me is a broken spirit, a humbled heart. I cannot fix myself. That's the sacrifice. There's nothing I can do to make this right. Acts of worship are not enough. And there's not enough of anything we can give up to change us. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's not trying harder. And when we begin to realize that we cannot live this life on our own. That's why we came to Jesus in the first place, because I cannot save myself. When we realize again that we can't live this life alone, that it's a broken spirit and a humble heart, then we totally depend on the one sacrifice that can make the difference. And that's Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. And that's why we regularly at Nagshead Church have communion. Jesus commanded us to have communion as a reminder of the great sacrifice God made so that we could be forgiven of our sin and freed from its power over us. It isn't something that we observe today in order to be forgiven. It's not something we don't eat and drink in order to become Christians. We can't become Christians by eating a piece of bread and drinking a little cup of juice. Jesus shed his blood on the cross and that provided the forgiveness. But we observe this, it's a memorial. What does it say on the front of that table, Jamie? In remembrance of me. We observe it. And when we do, it's time, it gives us time during this gathering to if we need, come clean and be honest about how we're living as saved, forgiven people. Paul wrote about it being a time of self-examination. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, Paul said, so a man should examine himself. That's what David was doing in Psalm 51, wasn't he? Coming clean. A man should examine himself, and in this way he should eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. If David had said, all right, Nathan, you're right, and okay, and never had spent any time examining his own heart and confessing it to God, I don't know what would have happened in David's life. My examination, what do you mean by that? My examination is to look for sin in my heart that I have not already confessed to him. 
Again, this is not salvation we're talking about. We're talking about for those who are already saved. It's for those who are already cleansed by Christ's blood through their faith in him. But even though we've been given, forgiven of all of our sin, the moment that we believe in Jesus as our Savior, he forgives us of all of our sin. But yet we still sin, don't we? God's remedy is that renewing that David prayed for that comes with regular confession. Renew, he said, a right spirit within me. Whenever, wherever we're convicted of our sin. A church that doesn't speak up about sin and the need for the church to be cleansed from it will have no, as a church, will have no joy of salvation. There will not be any basis for unity. So this is something we do together as a church. We regularly come together around the Lord's table to confess to God, and if need be, to confess to one another. If you're a believer, meaning you know you have eternal life simply because you've trusted in Christ, we welcome you this morning to eat this bread and that symbolizes Jesus' body and drink from the cup that symbolizes his blood. If you don't know yet, that you have this relationship with Jesus Christ by faith and faith alone in him and him alone, by grace and grace alone, if you don't know that yet, that your eternal life is already taken care of by Christ, then what we ask you to do is just observe what everybody else is doing, watch, but don't participate. I'm ask our ushers if they'll come now. We're gonna have a word of prayer and then they're going to pass out the trays And our band's going to do a song as we're examining. So let's bow to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, thank you for sharing David's story with us. Um, I don't think he knew when he wrote this psalm down that in 2016 in Nags Head, North Carolina, we would be reading his story and his confession. God, I know when I have times of confession to you and self-examination with you, I know I don't, I don't want anybody else to know what I've said and what I've done. But thank you that for our sake, you've included this in your book. So as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table, may our hearts be humbled, may our spirits be broken before you as we think of the great price that was paid that we might be freed from our sin and cleansed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world. 